So, the Feast of Stephen, in Stephen's day, Stephen was started as a table server. Just at the beginning of Act 6, when they were looking for people to wait on tables to solve a practical problem in the life of the church, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, along with um, others, was selected to serve at tables. But Stephen soon, it seems, developed a ministry of his own, and a preaching ministry as well, and a ministry of what we would call apologetics, because he was down there at the uh, synagogue arguing with the, the Jews, saying, well, of course, Stephen was a Jew, he was very much very much a, a Jew, part of the Jewish people, but he was there making the case that Jesus was the Christ, and opposition soon arose. And what we find in the story of Stephen is a little bit like what you see in those nature programs when you watch the mother bird pushing the young birds out of the nest. You look at it, you think, oh, please don't. Oh, it's so harsh. But it's got to happen. The bird has got to be pushed out of the nest. And in the same way, the church had to be pushed beyond Jerusalem. Had to be. Now, the thing was, of course, that there were lots of sects within Judaism at the time. We know that from the Gospels, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and uh, we know also about the Essenes, from, not from the Bible, but from other, other um, sources. And so there were lots of these groups, and the church must have looked a little bit like just another one of those groups. After all, all the members were from the Jewish background. They were, in fact, meeting in the temple at Jerusalem. We know that from Acts chapter 2. They needed to be pushed beyond the nest. Otherwise, frankly, we would never be here. I don't know how many of you are of Jewish background. Some of you may be. I'm not going to assume anything. But my guess is that most of us are, like me, Gentiles and uh, beyond the bounds of Israel. And yet here we are in a church in England, in fact, the Church of England, worshipping in English. And we have obviously, the church has obviously moved beyond Jerusalem. It is no longer centered there. We don't have to bus to Jerusalem to become and be part of God's people. The church had to be pushed out of the nest, and that's what's happening here in this very dramatic story of Stephen. Now, Stephen is really the first of two men in the Acts of the Apostles who forces the issue. He does it here, and in chapter 8, we meet Philip as well, who also, in his own way, pushes beyond the bounds. But here we are, following the story of Stephen, and I'm going to just tell it um, in four scenes. We've got so much to learn along the way, so much to teach us here. And uh, first of all, what I want us to, to, to realize is that Stephen was facing what I've called the slander of the intellectually bankrupt. The slander of the intellectually bankrupt. Now, the reason I say that, of course, is because he was arguing with them and saying Jesus is the Christ, but his opponents are struggling. So, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, we read there that they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom Stephen spoke. In other words, they were left intellectually discredited. They, couldn't, they, they had worse arguments. So the, so, so the question then becomes, well, if you've lost the argument, you ought to stop arguing and acknowledge the other side is right. But of course, they don't do that. What they do is resort to foul play. A little bit like Aston Villa later on. We're not going to beat Chelsea. So we, we, we've just got to hope that they, you know, that, that they get injured or something. Foul play, it's our only hope. And it was the same with these people. Foul play. 
and they, uh, they, they, they incited false allegations um, in an attempt to silence him. Of course, Jesus knew all about that as well. And we see that same tactic in use again and again. And uh, the West and Christians have been slow to learn it over the centuries, but it is, we, I think, slowly have learned that killing people to shut them up and persecuting them and putting them in prison is actually an acknowledgement that you've lost the argument. And so, the, but you get that often. Unfortunately, I think um, Islam sometimes does this. Um, challenges to it are shut down as blasphemy. Um, or um, that word that has been invented for the purpose of shutting down debate, um, phobia, Islamophobia, homophobia. As soon as someone disagrees with you, you call them phobic, and immediately you've shut down the argument. Nothing anyone can say. You've, but you haven't answered the argument. You've just called someone phobic and accused them of basically being mentally ill, which is what a phobia is and shut them up. Political, political correctness is a tool for bullying people into silence. That's how it was devised. It was invented by philosophers in the 1920s, um, at least as far as the West is concerned. The communists, of course, were practicing it in the East already. Um, but in the West, that was already invented that instead of arguing with people and their position, you would just call them names and cancel them. It's a it's a strategy um, that has proved very successful in our culture. It, and uh, it's, it's, um, you just, someone just says, look, I find that offensive. And immediately the debate is shut down. The intellectually uh, bankrupt. Novelist P.D. James said of political correctness, um, I believe that political correctness is a form of linguistic fascism and it sends shivers down the spine of my generation who went to war against fascism. Very interesting. See, in every generation, the message of the gospel, of the biblical faith, is subject to slander, slur, which doesn't answer the arguments, but just shuts down those who make them. So, the Bible's message, it's bourgeois. It's decadent. It's heretical, it's phobic of different sorts, it's intolerant, therefore, we won't listen to it. Shut it down. And that's what, really, Stephen is facing. Stephen had truth on his side and the best arguments, but that does not mean he wins. In fact, it actually invites and incites the slander of the intellectually bankrupt. Now, it's not that these people are thick, far from it, very bright, highly intelligent, but they will not yield to the truth because they don't want to. And in Stephen's case, they just basically resort to mob violence. There's no due process here because, remember, the, the, the Jewish people were not allowed to conduct an execution. That was the whole issue at Jesus' trial. And so, really, this is just mob violence carrying him off. Now, they have two charges against him, essentially, neither of which are true. They allege that he has spoken against two pillars of Israel's religion, the law of Moses and the temple of Jerusalem. So what's he going to say in response? By the way, um, poor Pam thought she had, it was, had, had prepared gamefully to read the whole of Stephen's speech, which is the longest speech in Acts. Um, so, uh, so, but, uh, so well done, and thank you for preparing that, but we... We are 
uh, I said, don't read less of it. And uh, she did, so thank you. So what, what is Stephen's speech about? Well, really, his speech, I'm calling it, so we've had Facing the Slander of the Intellectually Bankrupt. Here's another heading to keep us going. Following the logic of the uncontainable God. Following the logic of the uncontainable God. So Stephen talks through the history of Israel. He does it in different stages, Abraham and God's call, Joseph and God's purposes in Egypt, Moses and the deliverance from Egypt, and then Solomon building the temple. Four great phases of Israel's history, and his audience knew the story very well. But he points out details in it they probably hadn't, hadn't uh, noticed before. Uh, and throughout his speech, he's got um, two those two accusations in mind. You've broken the law of Moses, they say. Well, he says, really, have I? Have I broken it? No, in fact, he says, shoes on the other foot, you've broken it. Because he says, basically, okay, it's good one thing to know the law, but if you really know the law in the Old Testament, what you'll know is that the people continually break the law. It's there throughout. Ch uh, verses 38, 39, for example, in chapter 7, Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Sinai with our fathers. He received the living words from God to pass on to them, but our fathers refused to obey them. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. And uh, so Moses had also said that one day a prophet like him would arise, that they must listen to this person, Jesus, but they've killed Jesus. So he's saying, you are, you've actually, you're accusing me of disobeying the law of Moses. In fact, verse 53 of chapter 7, Stephen says to them, you received the law that was put into effect by angels, but you haven't obeyed it. Shoes on the other foot. What about the other charge? You've insulted the temple, they say to him. No, he hasn't. What he's done is he's put the temple in its proper place, whereas they have turned the temple into an idol. That's his point. Because the, the, the temple that they, that they loved um, was God's gift to Israel through David and Solomon. Of course, since that time it had been rebuilt. Famously, it had been wrecked by the Babylonians, um, and then it had been rebuilt, and, uh, and it, was, it, was, um, it was there in Jerusalem still as their pride and their joy. And it, it was a God-given thing, but the living God was never limited to the temple. Never. And their own history should have taught them that. If they'd looked back, they could have gone back to Abraham. Where did God appear to Abraham? Verse 2, in Mesopotamia, while he was still in, in Iraq. That's where the Lord spoke to him, in Iraq. Or Joseph, uh, we, we read um, that God was with Joseph in Egypt. He was, he's not limited or contained by Jerusalem. Or what about Moses? He met the Lord at, well, first of all, at um, the burning bush. And then uh, the whole people met him there at Sinai. And it, do you remember the Lord said, this is holy ground. The temple wasn't the only holy ground. No, God's not limited by the temple. And even after David and Solomon built the, the, the temple to be the, like the, the, the focal point of God's presence, uh, th that's, that's not, God's not limited. So he quotes, Stephen quotes uh, from the, the prophets and says, and uh, he quotes the prophet saying, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Where will my resting place be? I've made everything. He's not limited to the temple, he says. Look, the temple's a good thing. 
but God's purposes cannot be limited to the temple. He is uncontainable. Jesus is uncontainable. And Stephen's just following the logic through to the conclusion that others hadn't reached yet. Jesus has sent his people to the ends of the earth, and that meant that Jerusalem and its temple could no longer be the focal point. The uncontainable God, his logic had to be followed outwards to the ends of the earth. So Stephen's got nothing against the temple at Jerusalem. What he's doing is he's battering down their fixation with the temple. The irony is that God's gift to them had actually become an idol to them. And God will not let that happen. By the way, when we say the uncontainable God is on the move, that's not the same as saying that his message changes. That's the thing that doesn't change. There's a very fascinating um, thing to observe. What you find is that that churches that stick to the message of of the scriptures but are flexible in their format, they grow, generally. On the other hand, churches that change the message to try and make it more relevant but stick rigidly to the format of past generations, they tend to shrink. Fascinating. Because God's not anti-institutional. It's not that. It's not that God doesn't like institutions because he's sort of innately a rebellious sort of teenager figure. No, there have got to be some structures and to facilitate the work. But the problem is that human sin makes us fixate on the structures and ignore the living God, which is why the church has constantly to reform itself in each generation. That's one of the great slogans of the Reformation. Semper reformanda, always reforming. Because we've always got to be making sure that we're not clinging to the outward shell, the forms, and making an idol out of them and missing the living God. So Stephen's following the logic of the uncontainable God who is on the move. And uh, he will even, he, he, even abandon, if necessary, the gifts um, that he gave, like the temple, if they become idols to us. So Stephen's turning the tables on his opponent. Have, has Stephen broken the law? No, they have. Has Stephen uh, spoken down the temple and abused it? No, they have. So, where are we? They've, he, Stephen's facing the slander of the intellectually bankrupt, Stephen, following the logic of the uncontainable God. Here's the third thing, of course. This is where the martyrdom comes in. Stephen, sealing the testimony in Christ-like death. The whole episode has Jesus' marks on it, doesn't it? The Sanhedrin are involved there, the death itself. And, and, uh, and, and of course, as with Jesus, there's no last-minute rescue. Often when we read about martyrs, we read about them in glossy books. And it gives martyrdom something of a glow about it. We think, oh, wow, what a glorious thing. Well, actually, in this case, there weren't. There were broken teeth, uh, bones, um, pain, horrible, smashed uh, blood, and uh, this horror. It's horrific. But look closely, and you do see Christ's fingerprints. So uh, there's so many parallels to Jesus' own death. So um, heaven opens. Um, And Stephen says, I see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Remember, Jesus quoted that. There's a Bible verse from Daniel. Jesus quoted that at his trial. It's so interesting because Jesus said on the cross, Father, receive my spirit. But Stephen addresses the risen Jesus. Jesus, receive me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then Jesus asks the Father, 
not to hold his killer's sins against them. Stephen asked Jesus not to hold his killer's sins against them. So Stephen here, it's fascinating because Stephen is testifying to the resurrection, isn't he? He's literally seeing the risen Christ as he is dying and testifying, literally testifying in blood. He is sealing the testimony, the witness of Christ in his blood. And it shouldn't surprise us that the church's witness is often sealed in blood as well. You may know that the, the Greek word uh, witness is the word from which we get martyr. The, the Greek verb eyewitness is the verb maturo, martyr. A witness, a martyr. The two ideas are absolutely intertwined with one another. And it's happening. It's happening now. I mentioned, prayed for North Korea. The north of Nigeria, it's happening. In China, countless other places. And we feel unworthy of those brothers and sisters. But in principle, we've signed up to their fate as well, should it be required of us. As his people suffer and die, they follow in the footsteps of Jesus' death. They seal his testimony in his immediate presence as he stands there ready to welcome his martyrs. What is the effect then? This is the last thing we're going to look at. What's the effect of this blood-sealed testimony? Let me just remind you, facing the slander, following the logic, sealing the testimony, here's the fourth thing, inspiring the legacy of worldwide mission. Inspiring the legacy of worldwide mission. It's ironic that just as with Jesus, where was Jesus crucified? They took him out of the city. It's the same with Stephen. They took him out of the city, which of course is highly symbolic. Exactly, that's exactly what's happening. The nest, it's being moved on from the nest. We, Stephen, the mission is being forced outwards and Stephen didn't live to see the legacy. But we live with the legacy today. Consider who's watching. Do you remember Pam read it at the end of the reading? Who was standing there looking over the coats? But Saul... Saul of Tarsus, the young zealot, who uh, he may not have been convicted in that moment, but surely, surely Stephen's death must have left its mark when eventually he became the great apostle to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. So the legacy, St. Paul, and of course the legacy of mission, because as a result of the martyrdom, persecution is unleashed against the church, so the church is pushed out pushed out of the nest, but as they push out, they're pushed out like glowing embers that light fires wherever they go. Chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the uncontainable God, in other words, is on the move. It's a very significant moment. Facing the slander of the intellectually bankrupt, following the logic of the uncontainable God, sealing the testimony in Christ-like death, and inspiring the legacy of world mission. Of course, this is a unique moment in the church's history, like so much of what happens in the early chapters of Acts. There is a uniqueness to it. But there is a pattern here at work that we do see in every generation. We're seeing it in our own as well. The, uh, the, the, every generation must face the slander as it tries to, uh, the, 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 as, as those who intellectually have embraced uh, darkness, 
will try to silence truth. Every generation has its comfortable traditions, its idols, its sacred cows that need to be uh, reformed, repented of. And every generation of the global church will produce its martyrs. Every generation calls for its Stephens. So Stephen, he wasn't, he actually, he wasn't a bishop. He wasn't a, um, he, probably, he probably wouldn't have been an, or, an ordained church leader, actually. He was a deacon. He was a, he was a helper, a server in the church, just like actually all of us are in principle, really. He was in some, some sense an ordinary believer. There's no such thing, of course. <laughs> but that's what he was. And the Lord used him in this most extraordinary way. Who follows him? Who follows him today? In the colleges, the workplaces, the parishes, the towns, the cities, the world. Who follows him? And I think, reading this story, I'd rather take his stand. Honestly, I'd rather be him. I'd rather be him and lose my life than to gain the approval and the nodding acquiescence of the whole of this bankrupt world. Let's pray. Thank you for this extraordinary episode of Stephen the Martyr. May we learn these lessons from it. Teach us, we pray. Not only that, warm us, change us, give to us that clarity and that radical faith that led Stephen where it led him. By the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.